You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. In today's show, you're going to be hearing from a veteran resource investor, fund manager Adrian Day from AdrianDayAssetManagement.com. As I've said many times in the past, the first book I ever read on resource investing was written by Adrian over a decade ago. So Adrian, welcome back onto the show. And I'd like to pick your brain by uh, seeing how you're managing the funds under management as it relates to those money you've been given to invest in the resource and gold and silver sector. How are you managing? Are you going to cash? Are you deploying? Are you fully deployed? Can you give us a little insight here, please? Sure, absolutely. And Bill, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I know you said how we're managing the money with regard to both sectors, but uh, we manage money in um, we manage money across global markets. So, and then we also have dedicated golden resource accounts. Now, clearly, if someone gives you five percent or ten percent of their portfolio dedicated to gold, that person tends to want to be invested. If a person gives you half a million, that's all their portfolio for a conservative global account. I don't have to buy gold or resources if I don't want to. So I make so so that's a distinction to make at the beginning. It depends an awful lot on the client, to be honest. But you know, right now I would say we're pretty fully invested with our gold and silver allocation, whatever that means. If someone gave us money for gold, we're fully invested. In, in, the, in the global accounts, whatever allocation we have for gold and silver, we're pretty full right now. And I, I'll, you know, I'll admit, um, you know, perhaps we did a reasonably good job at, at trimming some positions in, in February and March, but we bought back far too soon. And, you know, that's not uncommon for value investors. So we're fully invested there. In the resources generally, I tell you, it really varies from one to the other. But generally speaking, we've got a lot of dry powder available for, for other resources. And that would include everything from you know energy to, well, uranium is energy. Everything from the energy sector to the base metals, agriculture and everything. So we're invested, but we've got, we've got a lot of dry powder there. And would you keep the dry powder for fear of a recession and a further sell-off? Or what would be the rationale between keeping a lot of dry yeah. powder right now? It, it really depends on the commodity. But generally, there'd be two things. One would be the recession, particularly a recession in China, which remains you know, the dominant uh, demand uh, uh, source for most resources. That would be number one. And then number two would be the war in, in Ukraine. You know. If or when that ends, um, I think there'll be some sell-offs in some of the commodities that have responded particularly well, particularly positively to that event. So, for example, oil and gas. You know, if 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 you if the Ukraine situation, you know, ended tomorrow, uh, whatever happens with broad sanctions against Putin and everything else, I think the sanctions on oil, Russian oil and gas would be lifted pretty quickly. Because that's what the West needs, and in that in that case, I, I think the oil price, the oil and gas price prices could drop fairly significantly, very quickly. 
Now, longer term, I'm bullish on both of those, very bullish, in fact. Um, but I'm waiting for, you know, I'm waiting for those events. So uh, in your experience, you know, as commodity investors, I think, as you alluded to, we can often be too early. How do you define being too early equating to being wrong? Like when, when you do your self-assessment, uh, can you give any examples maybe from your own investing career? Um, <laughs> that's a good question because of course, uh, you know, sometimes being too early is just a euphemism for being wrong. I, I think a lot depends on the time frame that you gave yourself when you made the investment in the first place. So if I, if I buy Franco Nevada, for example, or Nestle outside the resource area, which I'm buying as a long-term investment for long-term exposure to those various sectors or areas um, with a reasonable dividend in both times, but with dividend growth in both cases, it's a long-term investment. Well, if, I'm, if the stock goes down for six or 12 months, it doesn't really detract from, from, from the thesis. Um, if, if, if I bought Ajax Exploration because they had some drill, drill, a drill program coming out, well, you know, if, if I'm wrong by two weeks, then that's a mistake. So I think a lot depends on the, on the uh, time horizon and the objective for which you bought something. What about the gold stocks and gold sentiment, Adrian? Like, in, based in your historical perspective, you've been at this quite a bit. How do you rate sentiment right now? You know, it's interesting. That's a really interesting question. Certainly among generalists, sentiment towards gold and silver is worse than the negative. It's they just don't care. Uh, so the sentiment among generalists, I would say, is, is pretty much the worst I've ever seen. And, and we might get in, into the generalist a little bit later. With regard to gold investors, you know, I think there's a bit of, I, I'm seeing two, two types of people. I'm certainly seeing newer investors who are saying, by newer, I mean the last, you know, two, three years, as, as you can tell from my comments, I tend to take a long-term approach to things. Um, Certainly seeing newer investors who regret ever having bought gold and silver. Um, you know, why did I ever get involved in this market? Now, typically, as we were discussing beforehand, typically, and this is not a criticism of the investors, typically these are people who chase performance. I know when I look at my, my managed accounts over 30 years, I've been doing it 30 years now, um, we tend, well, when we get clients close other than you know deaths when we get clients close i would say the vast majority of those are people who've only been open a year or two and then when you look at it you see oh yeah we had really good performance in you know 1987 and they all closed in 1999 but people who've been around for a while they've seen the cycles they understand the inherent volatility and they tend to be a little more, a little more, a little more tolerant. So, with regard to sentiment now, there's no question that the people who have, you know, what we'll call, you know, dedicated gold investors, are frustrated that gold hasn't gone up more given the inflation, and given the war. But I think 
over the last few months, as more and more people, including myself and you, have begun to explain why gold is where it is and why it really isn't as bad as you know it might look on, on the surface, uh, I think people have become a little more comfortable or, or accepting, accepting of that. For generalist inflow into the sector, I've had some recent guests say that we need to see the generalist investor give up on general equities. Just say general equities are in a bear market and search for value elsewhere, other um, places, other sectors. Also, some guests have said we need to see all-time gold prices. Break through our previous high of of a couple of years ago. Those are two things. uh, From your analysis, what do you think needs to happen to see generalists flow into this sector, Adrian? Yeah, I think both of those are right, or both of those are true to some extent. I don't necessarily think we need to see the broad market collapse, but we certainly need to see the broad market, um, you know, stop going up and people start to rotate. There's already been rotation from the tech stocks, tech growth stocks into the value stocks and more defensive stocks changed a little bit in the last, you know, few weeks, but we were seeing a lot of that rotation. And I think, you know, a decline in the broad market, not a collapse, will see rotation into into gold. I I definitely think we need to see the gold price higher um, on a sustained basis. And it doesn't necessarily have to be new all-time highs. But if we start getting over 1,800 and 1,850 and then 1,900, to me, would be a trigger for a lot of interest to come back to the sector. But it has to sustain it. With regard to the gold stocks, the gold equities, I think there's one other factor, and that is, you know, the generalist wants to see consistent performance. And, you know, those of us who are in this sector, we know know that the gold market and, and particularly the equities are inherently volatile. You can't get away from that. It's a very volatile business. It's also a very risky business. We know that. And, you know, it's, it's only going to get worse, in my view, as time goes on. We're, we've already got all the good, all the, well, we haven't got all of them. That's not quite true. But certainly Nevada, for example, has been well picked over. And, you know, where you're seeing the really big deposits now, whether it's gold or copper, you're seeing them in the Congo or you're seeing them in Pakistan. Well, the generalist is just not comfortable with some of those places. In addition, those places give you not only additional risk, but they give you constant headline, you know, stomach aches, um, whether it's coups or new taxes or, you know, not letting the money out of the country or whatever it is. So again, if you're in the business, you're, you're, you're accepting of that, even if you're not comfortable of it. If you're, if you're a generalist, you know, and you're used to investing in Nestle, for example, um, buying buying stocks that go up and down by thirty percent in the space of a couple of months uh, is is just not something you can accept. And I think that's one of the reasons why generalists have become increasingly comfortable with the royalty and streaming uh, companies, which, although they're not uh, immune to volatility by any means, you know, again we know that. Um, but they're not immune to it, but they're certainly a lot less volatile and they're a lot less volatile on a very short-term basis. So the generalist is more accepting of that. Do you think the balance sheets um, of the major gold producers play a role in drawing in generalists as well? Yeah, I mean, 
Well, when you look at it right now, the balance sheets are very strong. The XAU index of senior gold and silver companies has net is net cash positive, which is astonishing for a capital intensive industry. Now that includes the royalty companies. So you know the miners are probably not net, net cash positive, although some of them are. Barrick, for example, is net cash positive. Um, <clears throat> so they have very strong balance sheets. The dividend yields are higher than the S&P, and the multiples, the earnings, cash flow, book value multiples are better than the S&P, which is the first time I've ever seen that, first time I've ever seen that. And I think that goes back to your question of what will get people to come in. When the broad stock market starts going down, people start pulling up the, you know, doing screens on Bloomberg and saying, you know, show me the highest dividend payers. Show, oh my gosh, Barrick's paying 5%. You know, it'll come as a huge shock to a lot of people. And where are the lowest cash flow multiples? My gosh, the gold stocks. So I think when the market comes down, people will start to appreciate the value that there really is, the true underlying value, not relative value, historic value, but the real value there is in the gold stocks. What are some of your winners and losers from Q2 earnings from the gold producers? Can you share just maybe some snippets or highlights that you? Yeah. Um, you know, production was more or less in line for most of the major companies. There were a couple of sort of exceptions, but pr production was more or less, wasn't out of line. Costs, of course, were up as we, as we would expect, but for some of them, you know, like Newmont or Kinross, um, it was it was a lot more than it than expected, and a lot more than other companies. Um, you know, like Agnigo, for example, which actually improved their costs. Although part part of that was just because of synergies from the merger with Kirkland, but nonetheless, some of the companies, Barrick, I mean, wasn't so bad, but but Agnigo actually improved it. The other thing we should look at, and I'll come, I'll come to specifics in a minute, is that the margins, you know, I mean, a, a lot of analysts and a lot of investors have been disappointed with some of the earnings, but let's not forget, I'm talking about cost pressures and so on and so forth. But the right now, certainly the second quarter, margins really quite good. You know, if you're looking at 1250 as all in sustaining costs for many of the companies, and you're looking at 1700, 1750, um, gold price. These are very, very attractive margins. Um, you know, we've seen the co cost increases. The big problem with cost increases is not just, well, it's another 5% we weren't expecting, but it can cause, um, it can cause problems at, at marginal mines. So you saw, for example, Pan American uh, they, they've stopped uh, mining the underground at Dolores, which is one of their larger mines. Um, although it's got a limited, it's got a limited mine life ahead of it anyway, it's coming towards the end of that. But the cost pressures were one of the reasons, one of the reasons that went into that decision. There were others, but that was one of the, one of the factors. And so I think you can see, you can see more things like that happening where cost pressures uh, will help, will be a factor in determining whether to do an expansion or whether to delay it, you know, whether to close a mine a little earlier, uh, it's a, or whether to do an acquisition for that, for that matter. And again, you know, I hate to be a, 
you know, sound like uh, a broken record, but but this last quarter gave us a perfect example of why, you know, people like royalties and streamers, because the royalties and streamers, by and large, had very, very strong quarter. And in Wheaton, of course, was heard by, by Bale Salobo, um, where, where production was down 39% year on year. But, but, but the others, and, and they had a good quarter, but just not a great quarter. But the other royalties all did very well. And most of them, Cisco, Franco, um, Royal, you know, they had record records on many financial metrics, uh, even though many of the miners didn't. So, um, again, that's why a lot of people just stick with the royalties and streamers. For historical perspective, Adrian, when I look at all of the failed mine builds and CapEx overruns over the last two years, does this seem like it's occurring on an above average um, relative to your experience in the sector in the last two years? Yeah, I think you're right there. Um, I mean, look, historically, there is a there is a long history of mining companies and maybe even particularly gold and silver, it's gold companies having overruns and delays. There's a long, long history of, of that. Um, but, but I think the last couple of years have, have certainly seen a, an increase in that, and for many reasons. I mean, obviously, obviously the, the uh, inflation, cost inflation, price inflation that we've seen, uh, if, if, if companies made a, a, a build budget you know, two years ago, they weren't, or 18 months ago, they weren't planning for nine and a half percent increases in, in different prices and more than that, of course, in, in, in energy and steel. They weren't planning for that. So that's definitely one factor. Um, you also get, we've also had incidences where the supply chain disruptions have hurt. You know, companies like Barrick, you know, unable, had to delay the Pueblo Viejo uh, expansion and one of the reasons was just inability to get very very specific but necessary uh, uh, parts for the machinery. Um, so yes, you're seeing some of, some of that. I think some of the most you know, if you look at I am Gold and Cote, um, I don't know that that has anything to do with inflation or supply chain. I mean, I think that was just. Uh, um, how can I put it diplomatically? I think that was just an over-optimistic uh, uh, build, uh, you know, plan, but maybe hasn't been executed too well. So, but that's an extreme case. But I certainly agree with you. We're getting up. We're getting a lot more, 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 more of that. Yeah. What's your expectation for like zinc, nickel, aluminum in the face of a potential recession? How are you approaching investing in these commodities? Yeah, well, those commodities, but really all, all, all commodities and resources even, um, they will be most affected by China. China remains the dominant source of demand for all those commodities. And of course, you know, prices are set at the margin. So if a recession causes a 10% decline in, in uh, demand from China, then that has a fundamental impact on the price. I, I think a lot depends on the individual commodity. I mean, I, I favor commodities not only where you can see a clear demand 
um, pattern and, and growth. Uh, and, and particularly where you can see new sources of demand, such as with copper and electrification, you see a new source of demand, but uh, and silver with solar panels and so on, but also where there are genuine um, difficulties in increasing supply. So I look as much as that supply question as I do at the demand question. And if you look at the supply side, you know, it would seem to me that things like copper um, have a very, very strong uh, profile, whereas maybe iron ore, now there's a shortage of high quality green iron ore, but there's no shortage of iron ore. Uh, and if the, if, if, the, if the demand doesn't care which one they're buying, they will go for the cheaper, um, they'll go for the cheaper one, you know, that's non-greens. So I think a lot depends on the individual individual commodity. And then you have some like, let's say, um, uh, well, oil is a good example where, you know, once we get to war, once we put that aside and that's over with, you know, I think there's a difficulty in boosting supply meaningfully on a sustained basis for a lot of reasons, practical reasons, technical reasons, but also political reasons, of course. So I think it's different for each commodity. But certainly if the, if the world goes into a recession, particularly if it's a China-led recession, that will have a negative impact on, on all of the commodities. So if you're still bullish oil over an extended period of time, do you have a target price for oil where you might be nibbling at some of these oil stocks? Yeah. I mean, the oil stocks, oil and the oil stocks, as you know, have come off a little bit from certainly from their highs. But, you know, I'm still nervous that once the war stops, you know, the oil price could go down to $70 or something like that. And the oil stocks would, would follow immediately. Now, would that be long-lasting? Um, probably not very long-lasting because the fundamentals for the oil market remain very, very positive. And of course, if the war stops and the sanctions are lifted, there'll be a lot of rebuilding of, of inventory and stockpiles in oil and gas, right? Because they're all depleted in Europe at the moment. So there'll be a lot of, 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 buy, of immediate rebuying. So it would be that would be my trigger, I think, rather than a specific price. We, you know, we did buy some oil stocks, not as many as I would have liked, but we did buy some oil stocks at the beginning of the year. Um, but, but you know, I've sort of got got out of most of them at the moment. And Adrian, last question for the second half of this year: as you assess the biggest risk for resource investors, would it be a recession or is it something else? Well, there's always black swans, which right. by their name, we don't know what they are. <laughs> or can't predict them, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the recession would be the most obvious known risk. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that. Your website is adriandayassetmanagement.com. That's the best way for uh, people that want to get in touch with you to get in touch with you? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I can give you the email. That's assetmanagement at adrianday.com. Okay. And uh, go to Adrian's website. You'll see um, a lot of his interviews that he's done, some articles, and he also has a subscription service too. 
at that website. So Adrian, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for sharing your insights on today's show. Well, thank you very much, Bill, for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.